Mary Chambers writes this about optimism. An optimist is someone who sets up all of the folding chairs for Wednesday night Bible study. An optimist is someone who makes plans to meet his spouse at 8.45 after an 8 o'clock leadership meeting. And an optimist is someone who puts her shoes back on when the preacher says, in conclusion, our topic this morning is about optimism. The optimism we have in our Lord and God, Jesus Christ. Let's open in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning in awe. We're in awe of your love for the world. We're in awe, <coughs> in awe of your grace through our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're in awe of your magnificence and in all that you have created. Our Father, we ask you to bless this time together as we study your word and worship the one who is the word. Who said, when you have seen me, you have seen my Father. Thank you that Jesus has shown us what you are really like, a God who loves us all. Amen. Continuing in our study of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52, verses 1 to 15. Awake, awake, O Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, O Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust, rise up, sit enthroned, O Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For this is what the Lord says. You are sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. At first my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately Assyria has oppressed them. And now what do I have here, declares the Lord. For my people have been taken away for nothing. And those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. And all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore my people will know my name. Therefore in that day they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. How beautiful are the mountains. On the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, come out from it and be pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not leave in haste or go in flight, for the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance, appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. 
so will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. The rebellious, adulterous woman is no more. She has been taken back by her husband, even though she does not deserve it. The woman is the Israelites and is represented by the city of Jerusalem. And now the new Zion, rising out of the old, is to put on her beautiful garments. She must clothe herself with the righteousness and salvation which has been provided by God. For it is he who will provide her with the garments of salvation and cover her with the robe of righteousness, as he welcomes her as the equivalent of his bride. All she must do is put them on by responding to him. Grace is again the agent that makes deliverance possible. When the Lord says you were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed, he is confirming the fact that he never gave up on his people. They sold themselves into judgment by their sin, but he still said, you are my people. There's a price for their redemption, but it's not money. In reference to the suffering servant, the inspired words of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 19, are anticipated. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The children of Israel have already suffered under the heels of two oppressors, Egypt and Assyria. In each case, God had delivered them from physical bondage and paralyzing fear. So in so many words, the Lord God says, I will do it again. So that my people shall know my name and my nature. Behold, it is I. Everyone who has heard Handel's Messiah begins to hum when they read another song of deliverance. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Few, however, grasp the full meaning of the song that he gives to the people of Zion to sing. Our mind's eye must see through the eyes of the watchman in verse 8. Looking out from the ruined walls of Jerusalem towards the distant mountains, where the faint image of a messenger on the run comes into view. As the runner comes closer, the speed of his pace, the smile on his face, and the note being waved in the air leaves no doubt that the messenger comes to proclaim the good news of peace and the glad tidings of salvation. Within hearing distance now, the shout is heard, Your God reigns. The watchmen run from their post and into the streets and shout the same good word to all the people. Those who wail will break forth with joy, and those who sorrow will begin to sing together. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of peace, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Many of us have heard this verse spoken on various occasions regarding people who are evangelists, 
But this verse, however, can only be speaking of the servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the one who comes to bring good news to the poor and to the afflicted. He is the one who announces peace, who publishes salvation, who declares the kingdom of God is at hand. The good news of good tidings is, of course, the gospel. The reign is the reign of Christ, which was first ushered in when the word became flesh in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the kingdom of God was manifested among us, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and will be consummated when he returns. In the meantime, all power and authority is given unto him. And it is the church's task to bear this message to all nations. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 to 20. The news that came to Jerusalem's walls in Isaiah's vision caused the watchmen to rejoice. And no wonder, for soon they would see their exiled brethren face to face. The news anticipated in the season of Advent is the news borne by the, by the angels to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. And the news of our redemption through God's Son is in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to, 4 to 5. And then a mystery, a hidden truth began to be revealed. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Even the waste places themselves were exhorted to rejoice at the redemption of Jerusalem. Isaiah 52, verse 9. So how much more should the Christian church rejoice in our comfort from God? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 to 4. And in God's gracious dealings with his people. Then as a result of Jesus, the good shepherd, fulfilling these prophecies, he then sends out his servants who will also go out with the good news to the world. Our God reigns is the good news of peace and the glad tidings of salvation that breaks through despair with joy and brings a note of song to the lips of sorrowing people. Urgency takes over as the servant says, depart, depart, go out from there. All of the preparation for deliverance is complete. The time has come to act. Yet, with the urgency, there is caution and a promise. The caution is, touch no unclean thing. Come out from it and be pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. From earlier prophecies, we know that Hezekiah had stripped the temple of the Lord to pay tribute to Babylon. We also know that Isaiah had condemned those in exile who contaminated the worship of the true God with the worship of idols. <coughs> Both of these sins need to be corrected. No idols were to be touched, and no bearers of the vessels for the temple were to be contaminated. The purity of Zion is a first concern of God, whether for the restoration of his temple in Jerusalem, then or the renewal of his church in the 21st century. Our prayers for revival in our day should begin with a separation from competing gods and the cleansing of those who carry his witness. 
God's promise adds another new thing to the lessons of his salvation. In contrast with the hurried exodus from Egypt, he tells the children of Israel in exile, but you will not leave in haste or go in flight. Cyrus's decree will cause them to leave Babylon by orderly march with the vessels of the temple in order to restore the worship of their God. For the long and torturous journey, they are given another promise. The Lord will go before them to remove the obstacles and smooth the way. He will also come behind them as their rear guard to assure their safety. These two dimensions of God's presence before us and behind us are all the assurance that is needed to take the risk that God asks of his people. Because each time we step out in faith to do his will, we are amazed to find that he has prepared the way before us and he has assured us of his protection of our flank. So whether it's obstacles in front of us or enemies behind us, the Lord promises to prepare the way before us and to protect the way behind us. Human nature shies away from suffering. When suffering comes, we wrongly try to explain it as a penalty for sin or a circumstance of chance. Few, if any of us, would think of suffering voluntarily for the sin of others or believe that our suffering would actually save others. Yet, this is precisely what the servant of the Lord did. In full obedience to the will of the Lord God, he made the voluntary choice to suffer for the sins of others and to find his reward in the redemption of others. No wonder Isaiah opens the song in verse 13 with the cry, Behold my servant. And of all the new things that God promised to do, voluntary suffering for the sins of others in order to redeem sinners is the newest of the new. And the servant's decision to suffer is not a matter of blind obedience to the will of God because the prophet tells us he made the choice wisely. The wisdom of the choice reflected the servant's understanding of the big picture of God's redemptive purpose. He fully realized the horrifying consequences that would follow. By his act, he also reversed the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden when they chose to eat from the forbidden fruit in order to be as wise as God. The Apostle Paul saw the implications of these two decisions. Although Paul had the hindsight of the resurrection, he sums up the meaning of verse 13 when he writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience may be made, many will be made righteous. Astonishment is the only way that we humans can respond to the information that the servant will voluntarily suffer for the sins of others in order to sprinkle many nations with the symbolic water of justification and purification and righteousness. Although he will suffer pain and humiliation never known before, 
He will be raised, lifted up, and exalted. And without pressing the meaning of these terms too far, the rising level of exaltation in these three stages may well co- coincide with the resurrection, the ascension, and glorification of Jesus Christ, God incarnate. In any case, the rise of the obedient service from the deepest human disgrace to the highest level of divine exaltation cannot be denied. His obedience to suffering and his salvation of the nations will cause kings to shut their mouths in awe as they see what their sorcerers had failed to show them and consider what their wise men had failed to tell them. The intention is to bring out the extreme depths of Jesus' suffering. That this would be the appearance of our Master and Lord Jesus on the cross is unquestionable. And the sight of the crucifixion of a blood-stained, maltreated, maltreated victim was excruciating. Under the justice of those days, the transition from a healthy man to a crumpled, broken, wasted wreck did not take long. And our precious Lord Jesus was not only bearing that, but also engaged in a battle with the forces of darkness that tore at his inner soul. Through his obedience, the servant will suffer until he appears to be less than human. But then his Lord will exalt him until he is undeniably more than human. In fact, he whom man despises and the nations despise will be the one whom kings arise and princes worship. Isaiah 52 is perhaps the most descriptive and most obvious prophecy in the entire Old Testament pointing to the mission and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we see the servant of God who knows his servanthood as the one appointed by the Father to save his people from their sins. Not not from one nation alone, but from all nations the world over. He came to fulfill the will of his Father in the deliverance and the salvation of people from all nations. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, as one version of the Bible puts it. The Father is pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of God, who has now come and accomplished salvation for the elect people of God. The servant of God. The Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall deal prudently or with wisdom in order to accomplish that for which he was sent. Translation at this point goes a little astray. For the original thought is not that of his appearance being disfigured more than any man, but that his appearance was no longer that of a man. Hanging on that cross... The servant of God no longer appeared as a man, but as some twisted and perverted figure that had once been a man. Such was the rigor and the torment of the cross upon the servant of God. He no longer appeared like the rest of us. The cruelty of the cross transforming him into a picture of tortured agony and twisted horror. 
What a picture of pain and punishment is portrayed in these words. And we can't even begin to capture or understand the intent of what the scripture is telling us at this point. Except that it does paint a picture of indescribable and intense suffering in the place of sinners. And that is the picture of the Isaiah 52 passage. For he is not just suffering at human hands here, but he's also suffering the wrath of God in the place of sinners. This is a picture of the servant of God not abandoning his mission. Not failing in his purpose to save sinners. Not being frustrated by the powers of Satan and this world. But actually triumphing over them through his substitution in the place of fallen sinners. Appeasing the wrath of God and reconciling enemies to our loving Father. And bringing his people into possession of eternal life at that point when they believe in him for their own personal salvation. Being worked out in the records of history upon that cross was our salvation. No longer will we have to suffer the torment that Christ went through, for he has stood in our place, having been counted among the wicked for us. Paul Ellis writes this, The actor Charlie Chaplin once entered a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest and lost. So why did Charlie Chaplin go unrecognized? Surely it was because we see what we expect to see. And no one expected the real Charlie Chaplin to show up and no one saw him when he did. Even though it was quite an oversight. It's not like Charlie Chaplin was unknown. At that time, he was the most recognizable person on earth. Along with the other contestants, he would have been scrutinized, to see how much like Chaplin he was. Yet, nobody saw him. The same principle applies when we come to the Scriptures. We see what we expect to see. Or to put it another way, what you believe determines what you see. If you believe the Bible is full of rules that we must keep and please the Lord, we'll find rules wherever and whenever we read the Bible. And if you believe we must work hard to avoid sin to please God, you will find tasks to complete and sins to avoid on every page. Our beliefs filter what we see. Myself, I expect to see Jesus on every page and in every book from Genesis to Revelation. Is this not why the Bible was written to reveal Jesus? Is it not his story? All the histories, the poems, the laws, the songs, and stories in the Old and New Testaments point to him. In Luke chapter 24, verse 13 to 35, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus tells the two as he walks with them, How foolish you are, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. 
To paraphrase Augustine, Jesus is in the old concealed and Jesus is in the new revealed. Or, to quote the Jesus Storybook Bible, every story whispers his name. Any preacher worth their salt will tell you that we need to read the Bible in context. But what is the proper context? Jesus is. He is the living word who gives meaning to the written word. The word context means to weave together. We take the words and we weave a story. So try and weave a story from Scripture without the central thread of Jesus Christ. And you end up with a bad story. This is why we need to wear sunglasses. That's S-O-N when reading Scripture. And we don't read the Bible to find principles for success, although it has plenty. Or we don't read it for rules for living, although it has plenty. We read it to connect with the author of life. We read it to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Psalm 103 says this about what a good father our God is. We rejected him, but he did not reject us. We ran and hid, but he came and found us. He does does not treat us as our sins deserve. Contrary to what some may have heard, God is not frowning at you. He is smiling at you with infinite delight. And this may be news to some, but I hope you will agree that it is good news. It's the good, glad, merry news that 17th century preachers said, which makes a man leap for joy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, the Apostle Paul referred to the Gospels as the glad message of the happy God. The Gospel declares that God is happy, and through Christ he has given us everything we need for life and wholeness. When we see how good our Father God is and how much he cares for us, doesn't it make you want to shout and leap for joy? For we can see from the scripture that God's love and grace extend over, beyond, and above what we can conceive or even imagine. It's like this. Counting the stars in the night sky will not give us an accurate picture of the vastness of the universe. But if we live in a dark place, we may be able to see several thousand stars. But what we see is such a tiny proportion of the universe that we really haven't seen anything. It's like that with grace. We may look at Jesus and say, I see grace. But no matter how much grace we see, we only have a tiny glimpse of an unimaginably vast reality. We sing songs of worship every Sunday. And not one of them is about our works. They're all about grace. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. And when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. Christ alone, cornerstone.
The gospel of grace is simple. And we don't need to read Hebrew or Greek to get it. And we don't have to go to seminary or Bible school. To paraphrase Joseph Joseph Prince, the gospel of grace is so simple, it takes theologians to complicate it. There may be 1,001 versions of a mixed grace gospel, but there's only one gospel of grace. And And it's this, God loves you. And perhaps we will be spending eternity taking in those three little words and exploring the immeasurable reaches of his love. It's, after all, what we were made for. And yet, we can make the gospel simpler still. We can go from three words to just one. And that word is Jesus. Jesus is what the love of God looks like. Jesus is the love of God in action. Jesus is the love of God come down. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Heavenly Father, again, what can we see but thank you. Help us, Father, through your spirit just to go out and to live in accordance with your love, to show your love to others. And we just pause and we just pray for you. Thank you again. We pray for your guidance in Jesus' name. Amen.